Uh, here's the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. And the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and they worshipped the Lord their God. And now on the Levites' platform stood Yeshua, Bani, Katmil, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherbiah, Bani, Kanani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshbaniah, Sherbiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord, your God, forever and ever. O oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heavens of the heavens with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants, and you have fulfilled your promise for your righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard the cry by the Red Sea, and then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and all the people of his land. For he knew that they acted arrogantly towards them, and made a name for yourself, as it is in this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. And then you spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments so that you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law to your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for their thirst. You told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give to them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. <clears throat> you know the old saying that you're supposed to leave uh, your skeletons in, in the closet. The only problem with leaving skeletons in the closet, though, is even though you fool everyone else around you into thinking there's nothing dark hidden away, you know it. God knows it. So hiding things uh, doesn't make anything go away that's bad. It just ensures eventually that someday your sins will be found out. That's what seems to be on Nehemiah's mind here. As we come to chapter 9, as we continue on our theme, building community in Zion, we've seen that Nehemiah has enrolled the covenant people. Uh, we see that they've gathered together uh, before the Lord to celebrate uh, the great feasts which... Uh, God had appointed and hear the reading of the law, and so they were sanctified under the word. But Nehemiah understands that in order to, to build a, a covenant community that matches the glory of those walls, well, it's going to have to be built upon a, a clean slate. It's going to have to be built upon confession. It's going to have to be built upon a new record for the people of God. And the reason is because all the people who are gathered together here in this chapter, in chapter 9, have a deep, dark secret, and that is that they have a family tree that's full of sin. They have a family tree that's so full of sin that it hovers like a dark, thick cloud right over their heads. And unless that sin is confessed and dealt with, there's no way to build a community in Zion that reflects the glory of God and receives its blessing. And so this is what Nehemiah is about now in chapter 9 as he leads the people of God in a day of, of confession. What he does is he gathers the people of God together in order that they may publicly and humbly confess their sins before the Lord in order to renew their relationship 
with the Lord. And so this text here teaches us this morning, people of God, that the way to build a healthy, thriving spiritual community in our midst is through the public confession of our sin. And so this morning we're going to think about this role of the confession of sin in building the health of the people of God under three parts, intentional confession, specific confession, and confident confession. You see, we need to read this confession this morning and realize that it's been placed in the Word of God for our instruction. It's teaching us about how we as the people of God confess our sins sincerely and honestly and transparently in order that it secures God's blessing renews our relationship with Him. And so the first thing that we think about here is its intentional confession. And there's a couple of components to this intentional confession as we work our way through this text. And the first is expression. There are intentional expressions. You see that in verse 1. And believe me, just reading it will cause this idea to pop in your mind. Because we're told here that the sons gathered on the 24th day of the month in assembly with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt on the head. These are not accidents. These are not accidental expressions. We see here, first of all, that they approach the day with fasting. And by definition, you don't fast by accident. Uh, Being food deprived is not the same thing as fasting. Fasting is a willful and intentional action whereby we deprive ourselves of food and of life's necessities and comforts in order that we may humble ourselves before the Lord. The very first thing that they do as they approach this assembly then is they prepare for the day by coming there fasting. The second thing they do is they wear peculiar clothing. We're told here that they came dressed in sackcloth. And the definition of sackcloth is goat's hair. And, um, well, the accompanying definition is clothes that are really uncomfortable. We can imagine how goat's hair must feel like as clothes. They don't come here making a fashion statement. They come here with mourning clothes on. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, there is this association, this connection between uh, sackcloth and mourning. And so we read about the fact that they've gathered here, not just fasting, but with this gear on, the sackcloth. We know they are here intentionally. And the third thing is kind of strange to us. It says, they came with dirt on them. Literally, they came with dirt on the head. And dirt then is a, is a sign and symbol of weakness and of corruption and even of mortality. You see, the scriptures not only tell us that Adam was made from the dust, but because of his sin, God imposed the covenant sanction upon him when he said, a dust thou art, and to dust you will return. And so from here out in scripture, from Genesis 3.19 forward, the idea of dirt was, in a, was a symbol of the weakness and the mortality of humanity on account of sin. The fact that they show up uh, uh, fasting and in sackcloth and with dirt upon the head uh, are all a set of intentional expressions to signify the fact that they have come together as the community of God for an intentional purpose. So we see the expressions and now we see the actions which show intentionality. We see that the assembly is assembled. The thing that really catches the eye here is the date. It is the 24th day of the month. And if that feels random to you when you read it, it's because it's random. Uh, we had feast days on, on the 1st of the month. We have feast days on the 10th of the month. We have a feast day on the 15th of the month. But in the 7th month, all the feasts are over. They're all over by the end of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a 7-day feast with an 8-day assembly, which was a holy convocation of Sabbath. And after that, The rest of the religious holidays are over for six months. The fact here that they've gathered together on the 24th day tells us that they're doing something that the law of God did not prescribe. The fact that they're gathered together on the 24th day after the month, after all of the religious festivals of the month are completed, and all of the religious festivals are completed for the whole rest of the year, says that these people have come here intentionally and deliberately, and they're there on purpose. And then as we read on to verse 2, we see something else that's an intentional and purposeful action. It's included in the text for our instruction, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners. And at first note, that feels just a little bit odd. 
But, but we need to understand this morning that this intentional act of separation is not grounded in racial animus or bias as if they look down at their pagan foreign neighbors with scorn and ridicule because they were different, because they were the other. The reason they separated themselves on this day from the foreign nations and the pagans is because the thing that they were about to engage in was something that was peculiar to them as the people of God. The, the very fact that they separate themselves into an assembly that's distinct from the foreign nations tells us they are owning their covenantal identity, which they don't share with their neighbors. It's these people, these sons of Israel, these sons of Abraham, who are in this peculiar relationship and standing with God by way of covenant. And so here is they do this very covenantal act as coming together corporately to confess their sin. They do something that was essential. They separated themselves. And by separating themselves, they owned who they were before the Lord. And that meant they had a lot of sins to talk about. They were their sins because they were the sins of their fathers. There's a third intentional act here. And this really gets us into the heart of the story and begins to kick off the motion towards the actual confessing of sin. But you can see it for yourself now as you come into verse 3. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of their God a fourth of the day. And for another part, they confessed and they worshipped the Lord their God. So now this is the third intentional act as they gather together. They've come here on the 24th day. They've separated themselves from their neighbor and they've come here for the very purpose of hearing the law of God read. This is an intentional act. They stood and they listened for three or four hours to the hearing of the law of God. And the purpose of all of that is intended to underscore the point that they are here to hear about God and His demands in order that it may lead to what's next here. They intentionally confess their sins. Notice the sequence in verse 3. They read from the book of the law of the Lord for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped uh, the Lord their God. The sequence is important. The law was read for a fourth of the day, and then for another fourth they confessed their sin. And even verse 4 adds to it that they cried aloud with a loud voice to their God. And there's something that's very important about that verb cried. Because it is an expression of not just sincerity, not just an expression of hopefulness. What it is, is it's, it's a word that expresses the idea that they are the people of God who are His special people, a special object of love and affection, whom he might be pleased to hear. And that's underscored from the fact that the same verb occurs in verse 9. It says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. You see, the picture there historically is that they have been delivered by way of Exodus from Egypt, and now their backs stand up against the Red Sea with a, with a raging army of Egyptians uh, racing straight for them. And the people of God, they cried out in hope and in faith that God would hear. The same verb is used here, and it sets the tone, really, of this text. Not just that there is a deliberateness about the fact that they've assembled, and a deliberateness about their confession, but this is a confession which is seeking something. It is seeking renewal. It is seeking a hearing ear from God that He may be pleased to listen to them as they confess their sin, and in response, hear and pour out his mercy upon them. And so that's now uh, leading us to the precipice of the heart of the text, which is this very lengthy confession of sin. And we do need to underscore the fact that it is a confession of sin, as you read about in verse 2, that gives us sort of a summary line of what's going on in our text. They confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. You see, this is a public confession of sin, and one of the things that's unique about it is they haven't just come to confess their sins, they've come to confess the sins of the family tree. Why? It's not because the sins of the fathers are their sins, as if the father's sins have now made them guilty and accountable before God. No. The reason why they are confessing the sins of the fathers is because the sins of the fathers are their sins because they bear the very same attitudes in their hearts as their fathers did. 
So to confess their father's sins was to bring that perspective into their own current and present circumstance and they acknowledge by way of it that the sins of the fathers are very much present in them because they share the same attitudes, the same sinful desires which flow out into the same sinful actions. So that leads us to something that's a little bit peculiar about this confession of these people on this day. Basically from verse 5 to verse 33, they're just confessing their father's sins, not their own. We don't get to hear them confessing their own sin until verse 33 where we read, We. You are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, for we have acted wickedly. There's a couple things here that we need to think about as we uh, apply this to ourselves before we move on. That is the intentionality of it all. The intentionality of it all is important. It is matter for application for us. And the first part of that intentionality tracks with the first part of our exposition. We talked about the intentional expressions. They've showed up on a particular day, which we would even call a peculiar day. They've showed up in sackcloth. They've showed up with fasting. They've showed up with dirt upon their heads. And the point of it all is to communicate the perspective and and the, the idea and even where the demeanor before the Lord, that this is not about something that is, is formulaic or ritual or merely ceremonial. You see, it would be one thing for them to come and confess their sins and, and maybe to bewail them or cry out loud, but if, but if that's all they did, they wouldn't be renewing their relationship with God. Those uh, external expressions of, of the fasting and the sackcloth and... and uh, you know, the very way they were behaving there, all of that was an expression of the inner attitude of the heart. And that to us is the point of application here. The way to apply this to ourselves isn't to go out and buy our own goatskin suit. The way to apply this to ourselves is to acknowledge that the key to sincere and humble confession before the Lord is that the attitude of our heart matches the words that we speak say and express to the Lord. But there's also intentional acts here that are important. And the intentional act that I would seize upon here just for a moment is this intentional act of of hearing about the Lord and what He demands. Verse 9 goes out of its way to make it very clear to us, or rather verse 3, that they heard from the law of God and then they confessed their sins. In other words, they heard about God first. Then they confessed it seems to me that's the point that we need to take from our text. This is, this is the beginning of the initiation of the sin-confessing process is when we start to think about God before ourselves. You see, sin is literally defined in the Hebrew as missing the mark. Sin is literally defined with the illustration of of drawing a bow and shooting an arrow and missing the bullseye by, by just a hair's breadth. That's literally the definition of sin. And so uh, religious scholars have looked at that and they said, well, what's the big deal? After all, you just missed the mark. You weren't way off target. You just missed the mark. So what's the big deal about sin? And the answer is from Scripture, the big deal about sin is God. It's God who is a big deal, and because God is a big deal, what you believe about God determines how you think about sin. You see, if the Lord is the one whom they confess here, the maker of the heaven and earth, the one who alone is Lord, the one before whom the hosts of heaven bow down, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, then sin is a big deal. In order to be made sensible of their sin, in order to think about sin for what it really is. This is how we do it. We hear the testimony of God's Word about God and about His demands so that that Word penetrates our ears and settles upon our hearts. There's no way to confess sin intentionally and sincerely and humbly without thinking about God first. And so we're in a great place here as we think about confession, as we move into specific confession.
question because now, as we take up our text and move forward in Nehemiah chapter 9, we begin to read the confession of the people of God. And interestingly enough, the confession of the people of God, first of all, is all about God. For ten verses, all you hear about is God. And as we just noticed here in our reading, it's not till you get to verse 16 that you finally pivot towards the actual confession of sin. But that's important for us this morning, as we've just pointed out, that we need to hear about God first and then His demands, and where we begin to understand the, the gravity and the nature of our sin and its offensiveness to God. So we begin here with the confession of sin, and we see a series of confessions about God. We begin with that in verse 6, and the first confession about God is He's the Creator. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Remember, we're told that they gather together to read the law. And you think about the law, technically speaking, it's everything from Genesis through Deuteronomy. And what's the very first thing that you read when you read the law? Well, you read about creation. It's likely that the very first thing that they read was Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. They read about God first and His sovereignty in creation. The first element of praise about God is that He's a mighty and sovereign Creator. And that affirmation is of first importance. Because if God isn't the maker of heaven and earth, there's no reason to magnify God's name. If God didn't make everything that exists, there's no reason to confess sin because sin isn't anything to begin with. If He's not the the powerful Creator, He doesn't deserve our reference. The fact today that sin is considered as something that's really not that big of a deal, mostly just a socially constructed ideology, is based upon the fact that the world that we live on denies the fact that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, The darkest and most severe satanic attack upon the church in the last 200 years is not critical scholarship. The greatest satanic attack upon the Word of God in the last 200 years is the attack upon God as the divine creator of heaven and earth. Because if I can get rid of God as the Creator, I don't owe Him any reverence at all. Sin doesn't matter. If we would revere the Lord, the very first step in revering God is being mindful of the fact that He alone is God and He is our Maker. You see, the world around us will tolerate us believing in in God as long as he's safely located in a box somewhere way away from the world and has no part in the affairs below. A God beyond reason, a God beyond touch, a God beyond any ability to prove or to understand. If he's there in that safe lockbox, it's okay to believe in him if that's something you'd like to do. But the God who's the maker of the heaven and earth causes all kinds of problems. That's the very first thing they do here because reverence begins here. Reverence and fear of the Lord begins with the fact that we didn't make ourselves. It begins with believing and understanding that it's not nothing that made us. It's God. So they begin with creation and then they move on to covenant or in verse 7 and 8. You're the Lord God who chose Abraham, who brought him from Ur of the Chaldees, and you gave him the name Abraham, and you found his heart faithful before, and you made a covenant to give him the land of the Canaanite. Without going into the whole story here of God calling and covenanting with Abraham, there's a couple of things that stand out to us. And the very first one is that word choose. They're very specific in the formulation here. Uh, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham. And that tells us this morning in the very way they are confessing God, and particularly about how he relates to them by covenant, they are expressing the fact that they are aware of and they understand that the reason why they are standing before him in Jerusalem confessing their sins is because God has brought them into a covenant relationship before him by grace. Sovereign grace at that. They are owning the covenantal position and relationship and they are saying that they stand before God based upon his choice of them. And what's more, it says, He covenanted with them to give them the land. And that land is the very land they are now standing on. He's the covenanter. He's the deliverer. Notice in verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And you heard their cry 
by the Red Sea. From here on, you're going to read the next verses in 10, 11, and 12, and so forth, about the various ways in which God delivered them, how they uh, were able to pass through the sea on dry land because God divided it, and how He hurled the Egyptian army into the sea to crush and to, to conquer and defeat them, and then how He led them by the pillar of, of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The whole point of it is to say He didn't just redeem them, He didn't just covenant with them, but He delivered them. They owe their relationship to Him based upon the redemption from the house of bondage in Egypt. And then after that, He kept them alive because He was their deliverer. The fourth thing that you see here in the sequence of the confession is that He is the revealer in verses 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. He gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and you laid down for them commandments and statutes and law through your servant Moses. So now the point is to spotlight something new. We've seen God as the creator, God as the covenanter, God as the deliverer, but here's uh, the key to it all. How did they know these things? Well, the answer is because God is the revealer. They're putting now the spotlight on the fact that the reason why they know God and can be identified as the people of God, the ones who are the descendants of Abraham, who he chose by way of covenant and then brought into his family is because God revealed it all. That's a key point. Because in the modern era of critical scholarship, the theory runs that the law of God was made up by Ezra, who's right here in this assembly today. The theory is that Ezra and a group of scribes um, decided that it would be best for the health of this new covenant community to have some sort of a religious book to guide them about what to believe about God and, and what are the distinctive marks and identity of the people of God and, and what kind of worship they should bring. And so the entire theory, which is taught in virtually every university and seminary around the world today, is that the law that they are speaking about here was not revealed on Mount Sinai in the 15th century, but rather that law was made and composed by Ezra who stood in their midst in the 5th century. But that's not what they confess. What they confess is that God is the revealer, the one who comes down upon the mountain and blasts with the sound of a trumpet and speaks horrible words that terrify the people of God, so they ask for a mediator. He said they own the law of God as His revelation, as an inspired word from the Lord. What made transgression offensive was not that it was the violation of some man-made tradition. What made their sins offensive before the Lord was that it was the very law of God which they transgressed the law which he revealed. We come now to the final element of their confession about God in verse 15. He's the provider. You provided bread from heaven for them, for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them, for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to them. And... Uh, we're positioned very well now to start thinking about the confession of sin because this little confession is really sort of a narrative of the history of their dealings with God. He, he created the heavens and the earth and then he covenanted with Abraham and then he delivered them and, well, he revealed to them and then he provided for them. He, he led them through the wilderness. In fact, he led them right up to the point where they were ready to enter into the land that he had promised and covenanted to give to Abraham hundreds of years before. And it's exactly at this point where the confession pivots from a confession about God to a confession about sin. And as you can see for yourself, this is a rather extensive and detailed list of confession. It just won't be possible to drill down to the individual points right now. But, but one of the things that we want to do is sort of survey and sketch the broad outline of the confession, and then we'll come back and we'll draw some conclusions about confessing sin from it. But I think it's important for us to grasp the whole or the breadth of the confession, if you will, because one of the things that is the aim or design of this written out confession is to give us a sense of the gravity of sin.
a gravity of the sin in order that it might be humbling to us. And so we read now of the confession of sin as we move on into verses 16 and 17. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn, would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen, did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you'd performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed the leader to return to the land of slavery in Egypt. You see, I told you that the confession about God ends in verse 15 with them right on the brink of the promised land. Notice here, uh, verse 15 says at the very end, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. And the uh, coordinate uh, point there is the southern end of Palestine that tells us that this is early on in the desert wandering, probably at least maybe three weeks or three months or so after the exodus. And they're at the place called Kadesh Barnea. You can read about it in Numbers 14. But the rebellion that is mentioned here is that God told them very specifically they were to enter into the land that God gave them to possess. And then if you remember the Numbers 14 narrative, one of the things you know is they sent a series of 12 spies into the land and 10 out of the 12 spies came back with a very negative report they spoke about the impossibility of taking the land because there were giants in it. And so now we read about this specific sin that's being confessed here in verse 17, which is that they hired a leader to lead them back to the land of Egypt. See that? He said they became stubborn, appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They refused to listen to God. The very first sin of the people of God that's confessed here is a failure to listen. That's the particular aspect or component of rebellion. They rebelled against God's very specific command, and that led very naturally, I think, by way of spiritual digression into the second sin that's noted here, which is idolatry in verse 18. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt, and they committed great blasphemies. Now I know that this is just a little bit out of chronological order that we would read in the Pentateuch, but it doesn't matter because the point of it is to show what is the natural progression or rather the natural digression of sin. When you begin with rejecting God's word, the next thing that follows is rejecting God and replacing Him with an idol. Now that's the point of what they're saying here. The gravity of their sin is that when they rejected the word of God, they replaced God with an idol and they lied about it, saying the false God was the one that brought them up out of the land. The third thing we see is the willful rejection of the law. You see that in verse 26. But they became disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. The key thought here is they cast the law. And the verb for cast means to pick up an object and to hurl it violently. It would be uh, the sense of, in our own language here, saying, I threw it right back in his face. But, But notice here where they cast the law. It says they cast the law behind their back. To cast it behind the back is, is a euphemistic way to say that it was, a, it was an absolute and total rejection of the revelation of God to them. And the dramatic exclamation point of it is bound up in what says here, they killed the prophets. They didn't just hurl the law behind them. That would have been bad enough. But every time God raised up a prophet to expound His revelation, His will to them, they killed it. They silenced the messenger. And the thing that aggravates the sin of the homicide is the purpose for which they were sent. The text tells us that the Lord sent the prophets to admonish them that they might return to you. God in His mercy and His long-sufferingness and His patience saw His people in the rebellion and their sin and their rejection of Him and He would raise up the prophets to, to admonish them, to call them back. And the aggravation of the sin is plain. They killed the prophets so they didn't have to hear a word of admonition, so they didn't have to hear God calling them back to Himself. And so we have the willful rejection of the law. In verse 28, you have ingratitude. It says, as soon as they had rest, they did evil against you. 
No sooner, and we'll talk about this in a moment as we think through it in the application section, no sooner we read in verse 27 about the repetition of a series of of deliverances of God from their oppressors, the next thing that you read in verse 28 is, as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. With the very taste of God's grace in their mouths, they spit on Him. And they turned against Him. And they rose up against Him. The final element of the confession, you'll have to skip down for it, is the affliction that's contained in verse uh, 36 and and 37 where we read here, uh, but they in their own kingdom with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their deeds. And then it says, behold, today we are slaves. And as to the land which you give to our forefathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we're slaves in it. And its abundant produce is for the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. And they also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please so that we are in distress. The last word of the confession is distress. And it's an ugly word in Hebrew. It's sarar. It's not exactly a word that gracefully rolls off the tongue. It's sarar. It's distress. It's not just the calamity that is sin's ruin, but it's the pain, the emotional pain that is felt because of sin's ruin. It's ironic God covenanted to give the land to Abraham and the end of their confession is that we're in the very land which you gave us, but we're slaves in it. This is the breadth of the confession. This is the broad outline of Judah's confession, rebellion, idolatry, rejection of the law, ingratitude, and affliction. The point here is just to survey this for a moment so that we begin to, to get a sense of the gravity of sin. One of the things that we look at this uh, list of sins, and one of the things we begin to think about is we say, what do we take from it? One of the things that we take from it is the specificity. They have reflected upon their life. They have reflected upon their misdeeds and their, their transgressions, and they don't lump it all under a category of, of sin. You see, that kind of desensitizes us to and inoculates us unto our sin, and we can take all of the, the garbage in our life and just squeeze it under a little word called sin. Well, it doesn't seem so bad all of a sudden. It's when you begin to specify it as rebellion, idolatry, and ingratitude, and affliction, and willful rejection of the law that you begin to to grasp the magnitude of sin, the danger of sin, the consequences of sin. It leads to sarar, distress. Sin is awful. Its consequences are awful. That's what we learn here. And we think about this for our application We surveyed it, and there's a few things I'd like to begin to drill down into to to help us take away from this, because uh, the point of of this confession really is to express the sin, but to do something more. What it does here, I think uh, this does a masterful job of exposing the heart. This confession doesn't just list iniquities. It unmasks the heart from which sin flows. That's where we've been to really learn from our text here. The first thing that it teaches us about is the attitudes of sin. The attitudes of sin. I think it's it's quite telling that uh, in the order and sequence of the confession, that the confession begins with the attitudes of sin. And they're so obviously transparent here in verse 16. But our fathers, they acted arrogantly they acted arrogantly and they were stubborn 
Here are the attitudes of sin, the arrogance. And the word for arrogance means exactly what we think it does. It's, it's haughtiness, it's pride. And the word for stubbornness, well, it's amplified in terms of a, of a picture in verse 29. As it says, they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances by which a man observes them. He shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not Listen, the stubbornness and the stiff neck is, um, is given a picture here of a, of a, of a horse or a donkey uh, straightening out its neck and sticking it straight up in the air so it can't, uh, it can't not be fitted with the, bri- uh, the bridle and bit. It, it, it's an unruly animal that refuses to be subdued and tamed. And so the point here is to begin the confession with the attitudes that Sin flows from the attitudes of the heart, which are arrogance and, and stubbornness. And what they are are warning signs to us, people of God, that, that when we see pride and haughtiness and stubbornness evident in, in ourselves, we can be sure that sin is crouching at the door. We have to think about the attitudes of sin. What is it that I'm saying by doing what I'm doing. You see, we have not sincerely and honestly confessed our sins before the Lord by merely itemizing them. We should do that. We should be specific. We should confess specific sins specifically. But if we haven't confessed and understood the attitude of the heart which produces and generates the sin and confessed that too, we haven't even begun with confession yet. But that's not all. He moves, uh, the, 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 the psalm, if you will, moves from the attitudes of sin to the, to the aggravations of sin. And there's three of them here. And the best way to see them is to note how they, they flow naturally from the construction of the text. This is very skillful design and presentation. And the very first uh, sequence or cycle of aggravations is, is verses 21 through 26. And the, the entry point into to grasping the aggravation is to start in verse 26 at the end of it, where it says, but you became disobedient. They became disobedient, and they re, uh, rebelled against you. But here signals that transition is occurring. Contrast is, is being formed. And it's a very strong signal. And say, well, what is it that's appeared before this testimony to their rebellion? Well, the answer is everything that is said in verses 21 through 25. Forty years of wilderness provision where Israel was never in need for clothes and their shoes didn't wear out. When God gave them kingdoms and people, verse 22, when God multiplied them and made them fruitful as the stars of the heaven, which marked out the fulfillment of Genesis 15.5 in verse 23. They led them in the land of conquest and subdued their enemies in verse 24. He gave them fertile land, houses, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees, and abundance. But the last part of verse 25 that really grabs the heart. Notice how the table is set for the testimony of the aggravation. So they ate. They were filled. They grew fat. And they reveled in your great goodness. Now, picked up verse, 20, verse 26 when you have the impactful transition with that word, but they became disobedient and they rebelled against you. This is the aggravation of sin that in the very moment of them being filled with all of the goodness of God, with the taste of grace upon their lips, they rebelled. The aggravation of sin. Notice the next one, verses 27 and 28. We have another one of these comparison contrast statements. So we leap forward into the compare, the contrast side here in verse 28. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil against you. As soon as they had rest. Well, the comparison here is where uh, we're going to grasp hold again of the, of the aggravation of sin. We need to say, well, what is so astonishing about what we read in verse 28? 28. Well, what's so astonishing about it is the repetition of deliverances in verse 27. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried, 
In the time of their distress, you heard them from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. You see, the image here is of the repetition of the cycle of falling into sin, falling under oppressors, falling under fear, crying out to God, receiving His grace and His blessing through the hand of of one Redeemer, Deliverer after the next. And the aggravation of sin is, but as soon as they had rest, they did evil against you. They returned evil for mercy. That's the aggravation of sin. The final aggravation you can find in verse 35, and the way this is, uh, is formulated or outlined here, it's just masterfully skillful where the punchline comes in. Here it is in verse 35. In their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Notice the punchline, the aggravation. They did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. But you see here, the aggravation of it is the, is the threefold blessing in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave, with the broad land set before them, they still refused to serve the Lord, and they sinned against Him. The aggravation of sin. You see, the way this is framed here is designed to teach the church about what true confession looks like. Remember, the entire point of Nehemiah 9 is is not just to jump through a hoop. This is not a hoop-jumping ceremony. The entire point of Nehemiah 9 is to restore the community and its relationship to God through confession of sin so it can be built and so the people of God can match the glory of Zion's wall. But they can't do that if they seek to inhabit the city with all of their sins. There'll be no health in that Zion. That Jerusalem will crumble and fall just like the one did before. So they had to confess their sins. But you see, in order to confess their sins in a way that restored their relationship, they had to do more than simply say, we did something bad. You know, it's one thing to say, Lord, forgive me, I, I spoke harshly. That's true. But it's quite another thing to say, Lord, hate was in my heart. So, I spoke harshly because I wanted to wound my wife with my words. Is that the same confession? No! It's not adequate to simply say, oh, I said something mean. No, I said something mean because I had hate in my heart and I wanted to wound and to hurt. That's sin's aggravation. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit, whoever it is that was the human author of this work, is explaining and teaching to the church how do we go about restoring our relationship to God through confession. It's not enough to just say some words. We're really good at wounding. If we're not being honest about what we've done by what we by by our actions or our words, it's really hard for the other person who's on the other end of the receiving end of it all to to wonder whether you really got the gravity. Well, what we're being told here is, is this is how we confess sin, not just the act, but the aggravations of sin. There's one other thing here that I think is also important in terms of learning for the text and, and uh, being able to appropriate and apply it to ourselves is, is that uh, 
Well, we reach down into sin's roots. Okay? We reach down into sin's roots. We've seen the attitudes of sin. We've seen the aggravations of sin. But we're not done yet. We learn here about the roots of sin. And we we see those cobbled together as a pair in verse 17. I I think it's quite instructive that it, it stands at the head of the list just after attitudes we read of the roots, they refused to listen and they did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. And so they became stubborn. You see, now we're digging into sin's roots. And the first root is a failure to, to listen. A failure to listen. And that word means, uh, the refusal means to be defiant of authority. In defiance, they refuse to listen. And the word listen here has this element or sense of, of listening to submit. Their failure to listen was not due to a hearing problem. It was due to a heart problem. They hated the authority of Jesus Christ. They hated the, the rule and the kingship of Christ. They were defiant towards his authority. And they refused to submit. And so here, the author and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit teaches us about where all of these sins come from. How in the world does it happen that the people of God are led to the brink of the land of promise which had been given to them by way of covenant through Abraham. And God says, go and I will be with you. And they fail to go. Their refusal to hear wasn't their hearing. It was their heart. A lack of subservience to Christ. It was defiance. The roots of sin are failure to hear. And the second root is failure to remember. And it's just masterfully stated here. I I just love that. It's so well laid out. But, But listen to this. It's not just that they didn't remember. It's you did not remember your wondrous deeds which you performed before them. You know what's interesting about this word wonders is it's, is it's the word pala, and it means, it means something that is so extraordinary that it provokes instantaneous and immediate awe. Oh. Like uh, the 4th of July, and it's really dark, and the fireworks are extraordinarily beautiful. And what did everybody say? Wow. But imagine a divine work, which was so self-evidently of God and extraordinary, and not of this world, that it couldn't do anything but provoke a sense of wonder. Like the Red Sea being parted. And walking through on dirt, on a seafloor. Like the wonder of a rock that, that incessantly flowed with water in the middle of the desert. The wonder of, of this gigantic pillar of fire, fire hovering over the camp of the people of God to lead them wherever they went. You see, it's this whole series of of wonders that are in view here when it speaks of them not remembering the wonders. And, And here's the thing that makes it what it is, is that the failure to remember is not a memory problem. It's a decision. It's a choice. You see, wonders are so awesome you can't forget them. The media today is abuzz with UFOs. And uh, one government expert after the other is now being trotted out to give their own personal testimony of UFO encounters. We're all being told that it's in the papers somewhere. Deep dark and in the bowels of the central intelligence age. You're some, there's, there's these UFOs, and we're all going to learn about the, the UFOs, and they bring people on who, who recount UFO sightings from, from 10 and 20 and, and 30 years ago, and they describe them in vivid detail. 
because they were unusual. Wonders are unusual. You don't forget wonders. You don't forget axe heads floating on water. You don't forget a miraculous supply of bread every single morning for 40 years of your experience. Wonders are not forgotten. Wonders are chosen to not be remembered. You see, at the root of their sin was that they determined to refuse to listen to God. They determined to refuse to remember His wonders. They refused to think about His grace. That's the root of sin. The refusal to submit to the authority of Christ. And the refusal to remember His grace. People of God, we haven't confessed sin until we've confessed its roots. We have not confessed sin until we've confessed its roots. How humbling it is to stand before the Lord in all of His authority, but also in all of His mercy. And acknowledge the wonders he has performed and how none of them affected my life and my attitudes when I stood before the opportunity to sin. You see, to confess sin is to not just to speak about a specific this or that. It's important to include that. But it's about its attitudes its aggravations, and its roots. When we become that transparent before the Lord, we can be sure that He hears us and we are now at the beginning of the restoration of that relationship because we've been honest before the Lord. How do we get there though? I've got to say that this is probably some of the most unsettling and disturbing information we can think about is confessing sin's attitudes and its aggravations and its roots. How do we get there? Well, that brings us to our third point, and that's confidence in confession. And that confidence flows from the character of God. We've noticed how there's a confession about God that dominates the early portion of, of this confession from verse 5 through verse Fifteen, but there's something masterful about this whole presentation of the confession of sin here is that all throughout the confession of sin is sprinkled the testimonies of, of, of God. And the very first one, I think, is striking to us. No sooner do we learn in verse 16 that they acted arrogantly and they became stubborn and they didn't listen and they refused to listen and they didn't remember the wonders and so they appointed a leader to return um, to the slavery in Egypt, we read this, but you are a God of forgiveness. The very first confession of sin cycle spotlights the very ground of confidence that we have in praying. But you are a God of forgiveness. We talked about the law reading preceding the confession of sin. And we said probably the reason why it begins with, uh, the confession begins with praising God as the, as the sovereign and powerful creator is because it was first in the book of Genesis as a, as a reading of the law. But you know, there's something else in the reading of the law which is like the Romans 9 of the Old Testament. And that's, that's Exodus 34. It's after the golden calf episode when, when God said, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses comes before the Lord and he pleads with them for the people of God. And he says, no, Moses, you're going to lead these people now. And Moses says, how can I do it? They are stubborn and stiff-necked people. 
And God says, you're going to do it in my strength, Moses. Now you come out here to this rock and I'm going to put you in the cleft of it and cover it over with my hand and I'm going to proclaim my name to you. At the heart of that proclamation of the name of God in Exodus 34, you are a God who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. It would seem to me that this confession of sin had been fashioned after the reading of Exodus 34. You are a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. If we would be a people who confess sin, it will be because, first of all, we know the God to whom we come. A God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the ground of confidence to bring all of your darkness before God. Is He's a forgiving God. The other thing is compassion. I love how this emerges in verse 31 because it's so sharp as it stands out in relief. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Notice the double testimony of of compassion. You didn't forsake them. This is after the series of testimonies of the, the endless repeating cycle of falling into sin, God providing a deliverer, and the people of God rebelling once again. Why didn't you just wipe them out in your wrath? And the answer is because nevertheless, you are a God of compassion. And the word is beautiful in the Hebrew is racham. Tender mercy. You are a God of tender mercies. You see, in the idea of compassion, has within its orbit of thought that God views us, considering us in all of our sin and misery. And yet He still shows us this deep mercy and love. The way to be an intentional confessor of sin right here is to let your heart be mastered, not just the thought that God is forgiving, but that He is a God of compassion, of the deepest mercy. And that He looks upon you in all of your depravity and all of your sins and all of your failings and all of your miseries and all of the affliction that comes to you as the result of it. And He sees you in it. And He looks at you and He regards you with compassion, with the deepest mercies. The final thing we see here about God's character is His long-sufferingness. His long-sufferingness. And we see that in the connection of ideas between 29 and 30. It says, They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them. You bore with them. This is the patient toleration of God. They sinned over and over and over and over again. And God's response was forbearance, long-suffering, patient with his people. Well, there's uh, how we get grounded in order that we confess our sin. We stop thinking about ourselves and our discomfort. And we think about the God who is on the other end of our prayers. Forgiving, compassionate, long-suffering. People of God, our text was given to us in order to teach us about how to build community in Zion. In other words, how do we build community in our midst? We do it in a very simple and humble way. We renew our relationship with God through confessing our sin. The uh, fathers at the Westminster Assembly were right on target when they talked about days of solemn prayer and fasting for the confession of sin. It says this is what we're to do on such days, humbly confessing of sins of all sort with their several aggravations, justifying God's judgments as being far less than our sins deserve, and yet humbly and earnestly imploring Him for mercy and for grace. You see, there's no better way to seek the health of the church than to seek it on our knees. 
And here we have a great example of the thing we should pray for when we seek that restoration. Intentional confession, specific confession, confident confession, remembering sin's attitudes and its aggravations and its roots, and at the same time, remembering the character of God who hears. Forgiving, compassionate, and long-suffering. When we approach God with our sins that way as His people, we can be sure He'll hear us. And the result will be He'll build His community among us. We thank God for Nehemiah 9 and the lessons it teaches us about how to confess our sin. Father, we thank You for a great text. We marvel how each week by week You lead us by the hand through these deep waters to teach us about You and to teach us about your church, to teach us about ourselves, to teach us about how to be a whole and healthy and maturing congregation. And we thank you, Lord, for this most challenging of lessons today about how to be a confessing people. Lord, would you grant us the humility to receive, that you would soften our heart, that you would open our eyes to see the attitudes and aggravations and roots of sin, that we would be moved like the people of God were of old to cry out to the Lord with our whole heart. Knowing, Lord, that uh, you will be pleased to hear us through our Lord Jesus Christ and to pour out upon us uh, every one of your richest blessings. We need faith to believe that, so make us strong in our confidence in you, knowing you are the God of forgiveness and compassion and great patience. We praise you, Lord. Would you hear our prayer for Jesus' sake? Amen.